what if they had a camera back in the first century and what if somebody had taken a group picture of Jesus and the 12 disciples and what if we had a chance to look at that photograph today. So as you're looking, you're staring at those 13 men in this picture, would you be able to pick out which one was Jesus? Probably not. The only time the Bible ever gives a description of Jesus and his physical appearance is in the book of Isaiah. There, it basically says there was nothing beautiful or glamorous about his looks. There was nothing striking or impressive about his physical build and appearance. Physically, he would have been hard to recognize because he just looked like any other normal man. I mean, you pass by Jesus in the marketplace, and there's nothing there to make you want to stop and take a second look. Whoa, wait a minute. Check this out. Look at that guy. There was no glow glowing around his head. I mean, he was just another typical-looking guy in a, in a sea of human faces, just another typical-looking guy in a crowd of ordinary-looking people. So Jesus didn't stand out because of his looks. And secondly, Jesus didn't stand out because of his name. Now, he does today. I mean, whether you believe in him or not, you hear the name Jesus and you recognize there is something special about that name, but not back then. We talked about this in our Tuesday morning men's Bible study, and we mentioned this in one of the adult classes that was taught last quarter. Richard Bauckham is the man who's done an extensive analysis of this, and he's examined all the historical records from that day and time, and on the basis of those records, he's compiled a list of the 99 most popular names for boys in first century Israel, and number six on the list is the name Jesus. There are all kinds of kids running around the streets of Nazareth and Bethlehem and Jerusalem that had the name Jesus. So Jesus didn't stand out because of his looks, and he didn't stand out because of his name. So what was it that made Jesus unique? What was it that made him stand out from everybody else? Well, this morning, I want you to hear how Mark answers that question. And he gives the answer right in the very first verse of his book. So look at this with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news. And in the Greek, it literally, this expression, the good news, is just one word. It's the word gospel. Now, we hear that word gospel and think, okay, it's a religious word. That's the kind of word you're probably only going to hear when you come to church. And for many of us as Christians, that's kind of a code word. It's kind of an abbreviated way of talking about the story of Jesus, gospel. It's the story of all the things he said and did and the story of what that means for us today. And so, because many of us as Christians are used to hearing that word, when we hear that word, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And we never stop to give it a second thought. But that's not how people would have heard that word back in the first century. Whether you were living in the city of Rome where the book of Mark was first written and read, or you were living in the land of Israel where all the events that Mark talks about in this book actually took place, whether you were a Roman or Jew, whenever you heard that word gospel, immediately you would stop. you just drop whatever you're doing. Your heart would begin to pound. The adrenaline would begin to flow. And you'd get very, very quiet because you'd realize, gospel. Either something shocking has just happened or something amazing has just occurred, but I need to learn the details because whatever it was that just happened is going to affect me and the world in which I live. Now, the only thing I know to liken it to today, so we appreciate the significance of this word, is the experience I would have as a boy. I'd be watching TV and watching my favorite TV show or maybe... I was watching this exciting football game, and just about the time my team was getting ready to make a comeback, and I'm worried, are they going to have enough time to pull this off? All of a sudden, the screen would go blank, and a voice would say, we interrupt this program for some breaking news. We take you live to the White House, and all of a sudden, you would see the president sitting in the Oval Office getting ready to make a big announcement. Either some big decision had just been made or some momentous event had just occurred. But regardless of what it was, here was something of the magnitude that the details needed to be shared because from this moment on, our life in the world is going to be different. 
Now, I got to be honest, as a little boy, I never appreciated those interruptions. I'm thinking to myself, I'm missing my favorite TV show, or I'm going to miss the end of this game because of you and your announcement. How dare you? But I was just a kid. I was naive. I didn't appreciate what was happening. Here was something of such importance, such significance, that they considered that everything in the world needed to stop for a moment so everybody could just sit up and listen. Because here's something that is so newsworthy it's going to change how you do life in the world. Now, that's the force and power behind this word that Mark's using here. Hey, right off the bat, he says, you've got to pay attention to what I'm writing here. You've got to pay attention to the news that I'm sharing, because the news I'm sharing is not just any kind of good news. This is the greatest good news of all time. I am sharing the good news about Jesus, the kind of news that will change your eternal destiny. So, he says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus. But again, which Jesus are we talking about? All kinds of young men walking around the land of Israel that had that name. Well, we're talking about the Jesus who's identified as the Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus, the name, reminds us of his humanity. He's a real man. He's a real human being. But at the very same time, he is the Son of God. He is divine. This is God in human flesh. Here is God in our midst. But how are we going to recognize him? Again, all these people named Jesus. Which Jesus are we talking about? We're talking about the Jesus that is identified as the Messiah. Now, that's the key word. We're going to focus on that. But just before we do, let me take you on a little detour. I think it's really interesting. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he's kind of laying out a map. He says, I want to tell you the story of Jesus, but I want you to see how I'm going to present that story to you. I'm going to tell it to you in two parts. The first part has to do understanding Jesus is the Messiah. The second part, Jesus is the Son of God. So the first part is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8 and verse 30. And you get to that part in the book of Mark, chapter 8, Jesus takes his 12 disciples and he pulls them away from everybody else. He pulls them away, takes them on a personal retreat, and he brings them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And there he sits down and just kind of has a heart-to-heart -heart talk with them. He says, hey, fellas, we've been together for a long time now. You've heard me teach. You've watched me heal people. You've seen me perform all kinds of miracles. What do you think about all this? Are you catching what all of this means? Who do you say that I am? And here's that first breakthrough moment in the Gospel of Mark. Peter steps forward and says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that God sent to this world to be our Savior. It's the first great highlight in the book of Mark. Well, now we need Mark chapter, the part two for the, the story that Mark is telling in chapters 9 to 16 because now that Peter and the disciples are reckoning, okay, Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah, the anointed one that God sent to this world to do something special for us. But now they need to realize what that something special is. He is the Messiah, yes, but now they need to understand what kind of Messiah is. You see, Peter and all the Jewish people are expecting the Messiah. When he arrives, he's going to rescue them from the power of the Roman Empire. They are not expecting their Messiah to wind up on a cross. Well, they need to understand God's Messiah. No, he's coming here to rescue us from a much greater power than the power of the Roman Empire. He's coming here to rescue us from the power of sin. So the second part of the book reaches its breakthrough moment when you get to chapter 15 and verse 39, and here we find a Roman soldier, a centurion, standing at the foot of the cross, and he's witnessed how many, man, he's seen all kinds of excuses. He's seen crucifixions before. This is no big deal, but this one becomes a big deal. Here in the midst of all the darkness, suddenly for him too, like with Peter, suddenly all of a sudden the light comes on. He recognizes the truth about Jesus. Hey, he hasn't failed. He has succeeded in what God sent him into this world to do. And so you hear the Roman centurion stand at the foot of the cross making this confession of faith. Truly, this is the Son of God. 
Peter the Jew, chapter 8, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. Roman soldier, chapter 15, this is the Son of God. The gospel isn't just for Jews, it's for Gentiles too. It's for anybody who's willing to put their trust and confidence in Jesus. And here's the other great thing about Mark and how he lays out this story. How do you develop that confidence in Jesus? Well, did you notice the first part of the story, chapter 1 to chapter 8? It took Peter and the disciples a while to get to that point where, ah, they begin to put two and two together. It begins to click. I see it now. Jesus is the Messiah. And just like with the Roman soldier, watching Jesus go through all the different trials, watching and observing all the things that have been said and done there at the foot of the cross, when finally the light comes up. I see it too. In other words, Mark's describing discipleship as a journey. It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. And if you're really going to see and appreciate who Jesus is and the special things he's done for you, you've got to check this out for yourself. You've got to spend some time with him, thinking, learning, reflecting, processing, if you're really going to appreciate this good news that's being shared with us. Now, back to chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is here identified as the Messiah. What do we mean by that? Well, I want to go back to the Old Testament and show you two examples of how that word is used. What does God mean when he uses this word Messiah? The first example comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. And notice, notice what this says. This, 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul, the first king of Israel, has just died. Died in battle. And it's David, the next king, who gives the eulogy, which is remarkable. I mean, this chapter, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, is a poem that David has written in honor of Saul. And what's remarkable about this is when you think all that Saul has done to David, the years and years he spent trying to wreck and ruin his life, chasing after him, trying to take his life, and now here's David paying tribute to him. And I mean, it's an honest tribute, a noble tribute. It's a powerful poem. But you get down to verse 21, and it's interesting, the insight that David shares into the life of Saul. Verse 21 says, On the mountains of Gilboa, may you never have... May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. Why? Because something horrible has happened here. And what's that horrible thing? For there the shield of the mighty one. Now instead of being honored, it was despised. I'm talking about the shield of Saul. A shield that is no longer rubbed. Literally the words, uh, if you were to translate, you would translate anointed. But actually it's the word, if you're, if you're reading in Hebrew, it's the actual, in the noun form, it's the word Messiah. This shield is no longer God's Messiah, God's shield. Now, the first time we read this verse, we're looking at the shield, and we're thinking, okay, here's why Saul died. Something was wrong with the shield he was holding that day. You see, shields in that day and time were made out of leather. And in order to maintain them in, in, in good condition, you had to rub them down with oil from time to time. It's kind of like what a baseball, a professional baseball player does. And the way he takes care of his glove Every day he wipes, wipes away the dirt and debris. From time to time he'll put on a special kind of conditioner just to keep the glove in good working order, to keep it from wearing out and deteriorating, to keep it flexible and usable. So we think to ourselves, okay, here's why Saul died. It's, uh, he wasn't staying on top of things. He wasn't maintaining his equipment. He did not go into the battle that day prepared like he should have been. That's why he died. No, 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 no. That's to miss the point. You've got to keep in mind David is writing poetry. And in this poem, when he talks about the shield of Saul, what he's actually talking about is the life of Saul. Saul has been anointed. He was called to be God's Messiah, meaning Saul was set apart from all the other people of Israel. Nobody else could perform this role. Only he, God, had set him aside to be the leader, to be Israel's king. And God would equip him to perform that role so that God could work through his leadership to bless his people. So to emphasize all of that, on the day when Saul was made king, here's what God did. God had Saul kneel down 
and had him bow his head. And then Samuel the prophet came along. As Saul's kneeling down in front of all these people, Samuel the prophet comes along and he begins to pour this oil, this anointing oil on the top of his head. And it's symbolic of how God's going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon Saul to equip him with the wisdom and the strength he needs so he can be God's kind of king. And this is all emphasized with this oil because Samuel's pouring out the oil. There's this this powerful fragrance, a smell that you would never, ever forget. And it was a unique kind of fragrance because it came from a recipe that was created by God himself. No other king of no other nation ever wore this kind of perfume or ever had this kind of fragrance, which meant when the king of Israel stepped in the room, immediately you knew it. There was a fragrance about him. There was an atmosphere that he brought with him in this room. This is God's man. This is God's king. You see, God has set Saul aside to live a special kind of life. But that's why David's crying. That's why he's lamenting the death of Saul. The tragedy of Saul's death is this. When he died on the battlefield, he died like one of the common soldiers. Not like the man he was called to be, a man called by God to live an uncommon life. In other words, that day on the battlefield, he wasn't acting like God's king. He wasn't acting like God's man. He wasn't living that distinctive kind of life. Or here's another way the word Messiah is used, and we'll just make reference to this. It's found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. In the very first part of that chapter, we kind of get surprised. Because the Bible talks to us about Cyrus, the king of Persia. And it says Cyrus, the king of Persia, is God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And we're shocked because Cyrus is not an Israelite. He doesn't belong to the line of David. He is a pagan man. How can Scripture call him God's Messiah? Because God's going to use him in a special way. He's going to work through the life of Cyrus, all the battles that he fights and all the decisions that he makes so that he can bless the nation of Israel. It is under the reign of Cyrus that the Israelites are going to be set free from their exile, set free from their captivity in the land of Babylon. It is going to be because of Cyrus and the help that he gives to the Israelites, the money that he provides, the military protection that he offers, the royal decree he makes as the most powerful man in the world, that now God's people have a chance to go home. They have a chance to return to the promised land. So, as you begin to look how that word Messiah is used throughout the the Old Testament, you realize it's whenever God takes a particular person and now sets them aside to perform a unique kind of role so that through that role, God can bless his people. And then you begin to notice as you scan the Old Testament that God typically does this with three kinds of people, kings, prophets, and priests. The kings, like Saul and David, they've been set aside by God to fight for God's people, to protect them from their enemies. The prophets have been uniquely set aside and qualified by God's Holy Spirit to speak God's word, to help keep the Israelites from being tricked and deceived and led astray by false teachers, to help keep the word of God out in front of them, to keep God's people familiar with God's voice and with his heart, to know his heart and what he really wants and desires for them. And the priest... They, too, are uniquely qualified by the Lord so they can offer the sacrifices so the sins of God's people can be forgiven. So every one of these, kings, prophets, priests, they each perform a unique role in the life of Israel. Well, here comes Mark. He comes along and he says, Jesus is the Messiah. And what he's saying is Jesus stands out from everyone else, not just everyone else in general. Jesus stands out from all those other messiahs we read about back in the Old Testament because it's now in Jesus that all three roles are combined in him. So when you stand before the church and you make this confession of faith and you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are saying, I believe Jesus is special. 
There is no one else like him. He is my Messiah, meaning he is my prophet, he is my priest, and he is my king. He is my prophet. When I want to know what God thinks, I listen to Jesus. He is my priest. He alone made the sacrifice that could forgive me of all my sins. And he is my king. He alone can destroy the works of the devil. He alone can defeat Satan. He alone can deliver me from the evil of this world. He and he alone is the one who can save me. Back towards the end of uh, World War II, there in the northern part of Italy, there was a break in the battle and the generals got together and thought, you know, our men have really been going at this really hard and at it for a long time. Let's give them a little break. So they decided to give the American soldiers some, a brief time off. So while they're here in Italy, 500 of those soldiers one night decided to go see an opera, one of those little Italian opera houses. Now, you need to talk to somebody like my son to appreciate this, but according to him, uh, you haven't seen an opera unless you've seen an opera performed over there in Europe, in one of those little theaters. That, that's where you really hear opera at its best. So for these American soldiers, this is going to be a real treat, that, to hear opera in this kind of a venue. That night, they're sitting there just really getting into the performance when about halfway through in the midst of a critical scene, all of a sudden, all the lights went off. I mean, with all the bombing and all the destruction that had been caused by this war, now the utilities didn't always function like they should, and all of a sudden the entire opera has just, it became completely dark. That's when one of the soldiers stood up, and he pulled out his army-issued flashlight, pointed it towards the stage, and turned it on. And then all the rest of his buddies began to do the same thing. And soon you had, all over that auditorium, you had 500 soldiers shining their flashlights on the stage, illuminating the platform. Now the lights were on again. So the conductor turned around and bowed to the audience, his way of saying thank you. Then he turned around, held up the baton, looking at his orchestra, his opera singer, said, let's finish the opera. That's Mark. Mark's telling us there's a real-life drama going on right now, and it's the greatest drama of all time. It is the story of Jesus, and God is the conductor. But the problem is this. There's a lot of people who are having trouble seeing what God's doing, understanding what he's up to, because we live in a world that is so dark. Morally and spiritually dark. So, Mark says, verses 2 through 8, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, he talks to us about this man named John, sent here by God, and God gave him a flashlight. And then Mark begins to describe the unique ways that John would shine that flashlight through his message of repentance and through that unique baptism that he performed. Jewish people in the first century world, they're familiar with immersions, with baptisms, but... They'd never seen a baptism like that performed by John the Baptist. And through all these activities, here is John putting the spotlight on Jesus so the people of his world can see and know the truth about him. Now, here's the point. Mark is saying, hey, I'm not just writing this book to sell books, and I'm not just writing this book to pass along some interesting information. I'm writing this book because I want to stir up a response in your heart. Just as God used John the Baptist to prepare the way for the people of his world, so they could see what, what God was doing, so they could see Jesus and meet him and have a life-changing encounter with him. So God would like to be able to use your life and my life to become one of those flashlights, to help people see the stage where God is at work and to see and know the truth about Jesus. Well, how's that going to happen? Just like the people that God used before, if we're going to be used to God, we've got to be uniquely equipped. So verse 8, it says, John, John the Baptist, he came baptizing with water. And it was a powerful experience, very, very significant. But that baptism happened under the old covenant. 
Now under the new covenant, there's Christian baptism. And this is something even more significant because verse 8, this is not just a baptism with water. This is a baptism where Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. The Bible says we, meaning as Christians, we have an anointing. We've been anointed. Yeah, not anointed with oil, but anointed with God's Holy Spirit. God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon our lives so He can make us new, so He can make us holy, so we can begin to live that distinctive kind of light where people see how Jesus has brought the light to our lives, how He's changed us, and see what's possible for you. Think of it this way, and then I'll close. Do you ever have this experience growing up where there was this old couch in the family room? And because it was an old couch, you could lie on it any way you wanted to. I mean, drink grape juice, wrestle with your brother, let the dog jump up and down on the cushions. Who cares? It's an old piece of furniture. You can't do anything to hurt it now. Just do whatever you want. Or maybe your dad and mom had this old car. I mean, they've had it for years, so because it's old, they didn't mind pulling up to the drive-thru and ordering some burgers and fries. And so what if your kid brother spills a milkshake in the back seat? No big deal. We'll wipe it up. It's just an old car anyway. But then one day, things changed. Dad and Mom got this uh, new couch, and with the new couch came some new rules. Shoes off before you put your feet up on that couch. And no wrestling and romping around in this room anymore. You've got to do that somewhere else. No bouncing on the cushions. No food. No snacks on the new couch. Why? Because it's new. It's special. And we want to keep it looking that way. Or dad and mom got that new car. And now, hey, forget about McDonald's. <laughs> we want to keep this thing looking nice. Well, so it is when you become a Christian, a Christ follower. I belong to the Messiah. Meaning I've got somebody special living and working here. God's Holy Spirit. And he's here to equip me to live a distinctive kind of life for him. What does that mean? Don't fill your mind with a bunch of junk. Don't pour all that trash in your heart. God has called you to live a special life. Not in a weird way, but in a way that is beautiful and glorious. In a way that attracts others to the Lord. Hey, look what happens when Jesus takes charge. Look what happens when Jesus becomes my prophet, my priest, my king. Look at how he changes things. And he changes things for the better. In other words, Mark's saying, when you tell the story of Jesus, don't just tell it with your mouth. Tell it with your life, with the way you live your life. Let's pray. God, I want to say thank you. When I look back over my life and I think of some of those really special people that you put in my path, so they could teach me, so they could encourage me, so they could rebuke and correct me, so they could prepare the way and help me see and know the truth about Jesus. And God, I know you've done that for so many others in this room as well. People who removed the obstacles, people who answered questions, resolved doubts, who helped us slowly but patiently work through all kinds of issues so that we could come to a clear understanding of Jesus and we could experience the joy of embracing him as our Savior. God, we know what an enormous blessing that is. So now my prayer is this, make us, make us that blessing for others. Every day, God, let us be filled and controlled by your Holy Spirit. Let us live under his influence and his leadership so that we can be equipped to follow Jesus. And in our effort to follow him, may his love, his light, his truth, his grace begin to shine through us so that others will be drawn to Jesus too. God, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus first established the, the Lord's Supper, he gave a very simple command. Remember me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, Jesus said, do this 
in remembrance of me. So every Sunday morning, we set aside this time so we can remember our Messiah and the special things he did for us, the sacrifice that he made on the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins, how he rose from the dead so we could have the promise of eternal life. Here is this moment, this holy moment, where we celebrate Jesus and we celebrate the great things he's done for us. As we prepare for communion today, let's prepare.